Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Daniel Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC back to Vegas this weekend after an exciting UFC 263. We'll be chatting a little bit about 263, and then we will be getting on to the excitement that is UFC Vegas 29, Korean Zombie versus Dan Ige. And of course, we will always get you fights, dogs, and parlays where we break down some of the fights on that card, give you some underdogs, and give you a parlay that we think will be profitable. And we have hit big two weeks in a row on there, so make sure you tune in for precisely that segment. But of course, you've also come here for the interviews, and I've got those for you again. First, I'll be talking to Julian Arosa before his UFC Vegas 29 fight. And then later on, I'll be talking to Alexa Kamer, who looks to rebound from his very first loss in the UFC. But before we get to any of that great content, i got to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas is the home for the avid sports better, providing insights, analysis, and free betting picks. That's right. They're free. It's basically like YouTube for sports betting. Head on over to Better Than Vegas, browse, search, and follow handicappers and sports personalities as they give you their thoughts on upcoming sports contests in all kinds of sports, every sport imaginable. And in fact, if you head on over there, you can get my pick for you each and every week. That's right. I can give you a bonus pick. You don't just get the good stuff on fights, dogs, and parlays. You also get it on Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas, he brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is Julian Rosa, who fights Sung Woo Choi at UFC Vegas 29. So, Julian, I wanted to start talking about this past year for you because, you know, you're one in four during your first two stints in the UFC, had a really rough go of it, Ultimate Fighter, Contender Series, all of that stuff. And since then, you've rattled off two straight wins, and not only two straight wins, but two straight highlight wins. What has this last year felt like for you? Yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, there was a point uh, uh, early on in the in my UFC career that I thought I would never fight in the UFC again. You know, being one and four, um, you know, you, it can get discouraging. But um, you know, I got a manager that uh, you know kept me on my toes during the the shutdown, and uh, and I'm I've always been one of those guys that kind of stays in shape and stays ready regardless of what's going on, and so. Uh, that kind of helped me be able to take that short notice fight against Sean Woodson on three days and was able to perform because I was in shape. Um, I was just as good in shape for that fight on three days notice that I would be for any fight. And so um, it was, you know, it was just setting myself up for a position like that. And I was able to capitalize on that opportunity. And, um, but yeah, you know, having those two wins in the UFC, like I've had, and not only wins, but separate finishes, one is, a, a, you know, a submission over, a highly touted guy like Sean Woodson, and then uh, a flying knee within a minute against a super tough and durable opponent like Nate Landwehr, um, just may, you know kind of reinforces the fact that I do belong here, even though I've had such a ro- rocky start in the beginning of my UFC career. Absolutely, and and I wanted to ask you about that rocky start a little bit too. You know, not just about the the good times, but about the bad times. So like. You had that that start, which was obviously not ideal. You said you you thought that maybe you'd never make it back. What was the big change for you? What what led you to now being this guy? Was it just that you know the chips finally fell the right way, or or did we see some changes in there too? Yeah, um, I think uh, honestly, uh, for me to try to pinpoint something specific, you know, it can be kind of difficult on exactly why things have kind of switched over. But um, I think you know what you know. My best guess, uh, and not really a guess, it's something that you know I I, w- I kind of became more desperate. You know, it was. Uh, you know, when they say, you know, a, a, da- a desperate man is a dangerous man, I think that's kind of a little bit of what had happened. You know, I, you know, was one of four, got cut again from the UFC. And I just, I figured there's no way I'm going to be back in the UFC. And uh, I just told myself, you know what, any fight that I get anywhere, I'm just, just going to have the mindset of being willing to just let it all hang out and whatever, whatever it takes, whatever cost. It's going to take me to win that fight. I'm willing to die in the cage. And, uh, you know, I fought um, 
AJ Bryant uh, on a regional show that I used to fight on a lot, Cageport, right after I had got cut um, before these last two wins in the UFC, you know, and I, and I got a first round submission over him and he was pretty good. I think he was like 13 and four or something at the time. Um, you know, and, and he, he wasn't, he was no slouch, you know, and I, you know, it was, a, it was a fight that I had to go in there and be just as prepared and be able to get a win over him. And then, you know, with the Sean Woodson fight, it was short notice. And it's kind of that same mentality where it was like, you know, things around the world were kind of like, you know, like unsure. People didn't know what was going on with the shutdown, you know, and um, it kind of added to that like desperateness, you know, I, you know, me and my wife, you know, had to sell our house that we, you know, that we had um, because we weren't so sure about what was going on. You know, she wasn't working, I wasn't working. And uh, so we had to make some adjustments financially and it kind of, uh, you know, you know, put me in a place of, you know, being a little desperate and, so once I got that fight, I just uh, I told myself, you know, if Sean Woodson wants to beat me, he's gonna have to put my he's gonna have to turn me off, you know. And if he doesn't turn me off, I'm gonna be in his face the whole entire night. Um, and and sure enough, that was kind of what happened, you know. I think, uh, you know, some people could argue that he might have been, you know, up a couple of rounds, and I might have needed that finish in the third round. And um, you know, there wasn't gonna be anybody that was gonna stop me as long as I had energy. And the ability to finish that fight, there was nothing that was going to stop me. Um, and just kind of that mindset, I think, was a little bit of that switch. And uh, compared to what I, you know, I had previously done in the UFC, and I think also earlier on in the UFC, you kind of, if you get comfortable, you can kind of get, you know, if you get too comfortable, it can kind of be uh, a negative thing, you know. Um, when I first got in the UFC, and uh, you know to try to get the nerves off, I kind of reasoned with myself why, like, obviously you want to win, but you, you you sometimes reason with yourself why it would be okay to lose because you want to make sure, you know, uh, if you do lose, that it's not like the end of the world. And uh, so, like, you know, in my mind, previously there's been times where I've been like, all right, you know, even if I lose, my friends, my family are going to be, you know, they're still going to be, they're still going to love me. They're still going to be around. They're not going to just you know, up and leave and my, you know, my training partner is going to be okay with it. You know, people lose fights. And so I think the reasoning, you know, trying to reason with yourself why it's okay to lose is a, is, is a, is a huge negative thing to be doing it. Uh, Cause you can beat yourself before you even get into the, into the cage. And so for me, um, kind of switching it over to being, uh, you know, 100%, uh, you know, confident and, and, and focused on winning at all costs. And, you know, if I do lose at that point, then that's part of the sport, you know. I just if if I lose, I'm okay, I'm okay with losing as long as I've given it a hundred percent and I and I went in there fully aware of you know being a hundred percent confident and and willing and a hundred percent with willingness to to win at all costs. And, and so you talked about that desperation, right? And how that desperation is so important to your mindset. But but now you're coming off two straight wins. You're looking great in there. You got a performance bonus, an extra fifty k written into your name there. How do you yeah. feel like you can keep that that desperation going, right? Like, do you do you find yourself still in that mental state, or do you find yourself, you know, slipping a little bit into feeling a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more in a better state? I think that's where uh, experience comes in. You know, for me, um, since I've I've kind of experienced the ups and downs of uh, you know being a professional fighter, you know, throughout the uh, you know the big organization and the and the big stage, um, I'm I'm. I understand it more and uh you know it's something that you know hindsight is 2020 and I wish I knew this you know back in the day but you know you know uh you you got to learn through your mistakes and for me um I don't care you know what has happened my last two fights you know that doesn't matter anymore to me so uh and, and I don't care what happens June 20th you know it's all about June 19th Song Wu Choi um you know and I've envisioned this in my head you know for the last 3 months um and, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, uh, I, I just got to keep reminding myself what happens when you get too comfortable, you know? And, uh, and for, and for me, I'm comfortable in fighting and I enjoy it. And, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not negative to be comfortable leading into a fight, but as soon as I'm there warming up and as soon as we're walking out, I, I kind of, you, you got to hit that switch and you got to understand that, you know, this guy across from me is going to is trying to take my other paycheck. He's trying to take my job from me. So, you know, I have, you know, people, I got family and friends and teammates that are counting on me. And so I'm 
you know, you got to have that switch to, you know, to, to go in there and be ready for war and be, and be willing and then have the willingness to die in there. And obviously, you know, it's not in a literal sense. You're not going to die in there, you know, most likely. I mean, it's happened, obviously, with people cutting too much weight and, and this kind of thing. But, um, uh, you know, not in the literal, literal sense, but um, I'm willing to go in there and risk my career, risk, you know, my health, risk everything and do whatever it takes to get that W. Oh, I love that. Well, I want to touch upon what you said something at the beginning of that answer, too, where you, you talked a little bit about the experience and the amount of time you've been in there and what you now know. Because your your career, despite only being 31 years old, is really long. You've been fighting for more than a decade, man. I, I got to ask, you know, having started MMA as early as you did and obviously hitting the bumps and bruises along the way, what what led you into MMA at such a young age and into fighting professionally at such a young age? Well, you know, it's uh, nowadays it's a bit different. Um, back when I was an amateur, I mean, I literally trained for like. Well, I'll, I'll start off with how I got into it. You know, me and my dad used to watch the WEC before uh, the UFC was so prevalent, um, and they only had you know uh, you know a, a pay per view every six months or whatever. And we weren't really into it that much, but you know, the WEC was for free. We were watching it, and it was more about my weight classes. You know, it was the smaller guys and. Uh, so we would watch it, and my dad, you know, me and my dad watched Donald Cerrone fight, and my dad was like, hey, he's, that guy's kind of built like you, man. You ever think about doing something like this? And I was like, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, maybe. I mean, I was more of a skateboarder, snowboarder, and I still am. I still love doing that stuff. And, uh, and uh, But, you know, I got into a handful of fights. You know, being a skateboarder kind of comes with the territory and uh, got into some street fights, and, you know, I kind of enjoyed it, you know, and then uh, I kind of, I just stumbled upon a uh, MMA gym we had in our small town of Yakima, Washington, and uh, started training there and kind of just, uh, it kind of took off from there, you know, I've, I've always been kind of obsessive about things, and not necessarily obsessive, but if I, I always feel like if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it 100% right and just, you know, go, you know, full steam ahead, and so that's kind of what happened with MMA, but, you know, back in the day when I first started, when I was about 18, I think it was, um, when I first started training, uh, that amateur level, and especially from where I'm from, it's a small town, you know, we have other small towns around us. The amateur scene is like a half a step above street fighting, basically. Nowadays, <laughs> you have kids, I mean, nowadays you have kids that are, you know, been training for four or five years. They have their purple belts, they have brown belts already before their first amateur fight. So it's a bit different than it was uh, back when I was an amateur. And so I trained for, you know, three months before my first fight, four months before my first fight and uh, had 10 amateur fights within the span of a year and a half of training, and then I turned pro. Um, and even when I turned pro, you know, my first handful of pro fights, I know there's amateurs that I train with on a daily basis that are levels above where I was even then, you know, 15 fights in as a uh, as a professional, or five fights in as a professional, 10 fights as an amateur. And I know kids that don't even have their first amateur fight that are, you know, levels above where I was skill-wise in uh so I think it's a bit different now, and so I think uh, the 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 track that I was on was a little bit um, uh, fast forward compared to it is now, you know, because um, kids now it's like they take their time, and I get it, you know, coaches want to have these kids step in the cage as prepared as possible for you know even for their amateurs so they can really uh, you know set a good foundation for them, you know, to leading into uh, their professional careers and, and trying to get in the UFC and that kind of thing. So. Um, for me, though, it was a bit different. You know, uh, I had those 10 amateur fights really quick. Uh, I turned turned pro in, um, shoot, I think, I can't remember, 2010. And, uh, you know, it was pretty quick. It was under two years of even training. So, um, uh, and then I, you know, kind of just, I had six fights my first year, which is kind of unheard of. A lot of people don't fight that, you know, that often. Uh, but uh, I wasn't very intimidating, and people thought they could beat me. And, uh, I was really scrappy at the time, and uh, well, I'm still scrappy, but uh, I was able to beat a lot of guys that didn't think that that I could beat, and then uh, just kind of kept moving up. And you know, um, uh, for me, it was it was it was kind of a fast-paced experience learning thing. But you know, I'm so glad I was able to do it because you know I was I was uh, kind of thrown in to a lot of different uh, scenarios and situations, uh, being a little bit more naive than I should have been. But that, you know, being naive, when I say ignorance is bliss, you know, really kind of helped me. You know, being on the Ultimate Fighter, people were so worried about, like, looking people up. But I was just, like, naive about it. And 
I was just fighting dudes to fight dudes. Like, I didn't know. Like, I fought Medi Baghdad on the Ultimate Fighter, and I didn't know a thing about the guy. I, I, I was just like, oh, well, we're doing MMA, like, and I've been doing good. So I could probably beat this dude, too. And <laughs> I had no idea he was, like, a world champion, like, kickboxer or whatever it was. And, and, uh, and I remember Uriah Faber was, like, and, 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 my, and, and our team was telling me to try to, you know, possibly get him to the ground because the guy is, like, a world champion kickboxer. And I was thinking in my head, but I didn't know that. It, it made even really explain that to me. They were like, yeah, you know, maybe we should try to get him to the ground. I was like thinking in my head, I was like, I don't even think I've shot one takedown <laughs> in my entire career. And I, I, that's no joke. I don't even think I took a, a shot, a takedown until like my, you know, like the third fight on the Ultimate Fighter was one at the first, and I was 14 and two at the time. So I had 16 pro fights, and this was my third fight in the Ultimate Fighter. It was the first time I'd ever shot a takedown. And, um, <laughs> But when I fought Medi, I didn't shoot one takedown. Never had. And I was just like, man, I've never shot a takedown. I've always been a striker. Like, why am I going to take this fool down? Like, I'm just going to strike with him. I don't care what his credentials are, you know. And so, uh, and I think that's, you know, that kind of helped me out, you know, in some of those uh, situations. But um, obviously, you want to make the the best decisions that you can. And I think uh, over the years, um, you know, with this experience, I've I've learned to, uh, take into consideration certain things like that and instead of just like you know throwing it to the wind like oh whatever happens happens you know you got to go in there with you know something in your mind about you know uh you know focused on on how you're going to win and and trying to play that out uh, as correctly as possible well and you for sure seems to have learned that lesson over the course of your your long career now i want to talk about that now because you're you got this fight coming up next week against Sung Woo Choi. It is an exciting one because he also has put on some performances with his hands that have excited fans. How do you see this one going when you face off with Sung Woo Choi next weekend? Um, you know, I think Sung Woo Choi, he, he's he's one of those guys who's pressured with his, uh, his stand-up. But I'm the same way. I mean, you look at Sha- me and Sean Woodson. Sean Woodson was a great boxer. Um, has You know, he was a Golden Gloves. And, um, you know, he was pressuring me in the beginning of that fight. But, uh you know, I'm durable, I'm tough, and, and one thing that I have, you know, above all else is my cardio. And so, um, and he looks like he has, like, really good cardio as well. So, it, I think it's just going to be kind of a war of an attrition. Um, I think my whole MMA game is better than his game. I've been doing it for a lot longer, I think, and, uh, you know, I have a lot more experience than he does. Um, and uh, so, I think I, you know, in the whole grand scheme of MMA, I think I have a lot better skill than he does. And uh, I think I can win this fight in multiple uh, areas. Um, I think his best, uh, you know, his best aspect and his his way of winning this fight would be in the stand-up, if anything. And so uh, I think uh, uh, I think I'm going to be able to pressure him uh, and, and kind of break him a little bit, and then uh, and then hopefully be able to get him to the ground and choke him. Um, kind of like uh, kind of similar to how I did uh, with Sean Woodson. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This is Julian Arosa, who fights Sung Woo Choi at UFC Vegas 29. Thank you so much for the time, Julian. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on, brother. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Julian Arosa. I, once again, am Daniel Gumby Vreeland. Joining me now is my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, let's talk UFC 263, because it was a hell of an event let's start with Brandon Moreno. Is Brandon Moreno a future superstar in this sport? Your thoughts? Wow, that's a great question, Gumby, and it's a bit of a complicated one to answer. Uh, Is Moreno a future star? Potentially. Uh, He's really exciting. He's kind of a Lego nerd, which is hilarious. I've seen a ton of memes this week kind of making fun of the fact that, you know, he likes anime. He's a Lego guy. He speaks better English than Devison Figueroa. And uh, I think from that standpoint, the flyweight division is in good hands with him. Is he a future breakout star? No. And I don't know that anyone at flyweight ever will be. Listen, if Demetrius Johnson couldn't be a big star that sells pay-per-views on his own, and I know he didn't have the most exciting personality, but, you know, match quality, uh, actual uh, fighting prowess, he, you know, he's goat at that, that weight class. I think flyweight inherently is always going to have that problem is that they just look small on TV when the casuals, the filthy casuals are watching in a bar. But could Marino be a guy that headlines a show that does okay? I think that's 
the height of what he could be, and I think he could be that if it makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I can see maybe not all the way up to you know a like Conor McGregor levels. Nobody's going to hit that for a while, or even or even maybe not Israel Adesanya levels because he seems to be being pretty popular right now too. But I, I think you were right about like. He hits that Lego nerdness, which seems to bring in a whole different audience. You know, he he represents a country who's never had a champion, despite the fact that they tried to, you know, shove Cain Velasquez and Tito Ortiz in our face like they were actually from Mexico. Um, like he's actually from Mexico, but he also, like you said, speaks English, so he checks a lot of boxes. So I think there there is a potential for him to headline some stuff and be a pretty big deal. But you, I, I think you're right. It, that weight class is always going to have trouble finding that transcended star, but. Hey man, personality-wise, he's he's got all that it takes to be a big big deal. Well, speaking of personality-wise and transcendent stars, I'd like to talk about Nate Diaz's performance. Uh, absolutely hilarious that they made a non-headliner, non-title fight five rounds, and we called that last week. We the UFC knew what they were doing. Nate Diaz, obviously, a massive underdog to Leon Edwards, who. I hate to even have the last couple of minutes of that performance take away from what was a brilliant performance by him. I mean, he is as top five as a top five guy gets. Again, maybe not that exciting, maybe not the guy that brings in the casuals because he doesn't have the mic work. Um, but that all being said, and again, not to pat our own back, but we called that. We said Nate as late in that fight, was as live a dog as a dog is live. And that's exactly what happened with Nate Diaz coming pretty close to maybe finishing the fight within the last minute. Couldn't do it. And it was a perfect win-win for the UFC because while it's not the greatest fight for Leon Edwards to now go and challenge for a title, and certainly I think they're going to still give Colby his shot. He didn't like, you know, leapfrog over Colby, but Nate looks great in a loss again. And it's kind of like a little bit similar to what happened when he faced Jorge Masvidal because of that bullshit stoppage, even though he was losing, it kind of gave him the out. So, you know, I think it was a win-win in a lot of ways for the UFC. The the Nate Diaz stock stays high, and you didn't kill off a contender in Leon Edwards. Yeah, that that's true, but I don't know that we didn't kill him. I mean, like you didn't you didn't put a nail in his coffin as a contender, but I will tell you. I actually think he falls farther away from contention with that fight than he moves closer. Because his problem was never that he didn't have the wins. It was never that he didn't have the win streak. His problem was is that people didn't buy his cred, right? Like, the one of the best wins of his life was followed up by him getting punched backstage. And that's all people talked about. For years, people talked about him getting punched backstage. Now, again, maybe the biggest win of his career. And what are we talking about? We're talking about Nate Diaz's combo in the fifth round after being beat for 24 minutes. And, like, we're not talking about him losing for 24 minutes. So I actually think this does a lot of harm to Leon Edwards. You're, you're 100% right on the Nate side, right? Like, Nate's stock goes up. Nate looks great. Nate, Nate sells Nate the way that Nate sells Nate, and it's perfect. But I actually think I'd slide Leon Edwards not only staying behind Colby Covington with that performance. I actually think he now takes a back seat to Gilbert Burns or... Uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson with a win in that fight. Like whoever comes out yeah, of that but... fight, whoever comes out of that fight with a win is ahead of Leon Edwards after that performance. And it's not because Leon Edwards didn't look good. It's not because he didn't get a quality win. It literally, to me, is because of that combination. You know, uh, I talk about this a lot, and Daniel Cormier actually brings it up too. Uh, old professional wrestling term called the rub when you face off against a giant superstar. You hope you get a little of that pixie dust sprinkled on you called the rub. And let's also not forget that Nate was a uh, hardcore fan icon. And it wasn't until the Connor fight that he exploded into mainstream prominence, started doing talk shows around that time, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone came to love the weed smoking, Whole Foods buying Nate Diaz that year. And I think a little of that actually happened. I'll go another way with it. I think you're right that maybe Gilbert Burns leapfrogs him, but let's just say that Leon Edwards fights Wonderboy Thompson next. He loses to Gilbert Burns. Burns gets some sort of rematch maybe. I don't know. I'm just playing matchmaker here in my head. But let's just say Leon Edwards beats another big name, a Burns, a Colby, a Wonderboy, and then he's fighting for the title. 
I think from that casual fan perspective, he kind of has a gimmick now, which is, oh, he's the guy that's had like 30 wins that weren't impressive and almost got knocked out by Nate Diaz. So I think just being in there with Nate helps. And even if it angered some people, if he got a title shot off that performance, I think that's good. I think it was just a very memorable ending to a fight. So I don't know. I'm high on it. I think it was just great drama, and I think it was going to be good for both of them ultimately. But I do think you're right. Maybe he now has to have one more win. It's not just handed to him. And I'm fine with that, too. But, you know, Leon Edwards is an interesting case, man, because he's pretty fucking talented. But do I think he's championship-level like material talented? I don't. No, you? no, I, I don't think he's going to be Usman, but mostly because I don't think anybody's going to be Usman right now. Uh, but like, I, I would also say he earned his shot. Like, he should be fighting for the title next. Like, I, I it, without a doubt in my mind, he should be fighting for the title next, with the exception of if Wonder Boy went out there and just plastered Gilbert Burns, right? Like, that's the only way I would see him not getting it. Because right now, all, all Colby Covington has since his last loss to Usman is like a, a weird injury TKO over Tyron Woodley. But I'll, I'll, I'll drive home this one last point about why I think this did so much harm to him. You're right. That gimmick where, like, oh, uh, he's the guy who's going to make fans angry for getting that shot because he gets pieced up backstage or Nate Diaz almost knocks him out and he still kind of angrily wins and gets booed out of the stadium. I think you're right. I think that works on a fan's level. And I think if you tried to sell that, I think it would sell well. I just don't know that Dana White ever goes that direction. You know what I mean? Like, I can't see Dana White being like, oh, Leon Edwards is going to get a lot of heat. Let's go with Leon Edwards. Because you know who gets more heat than Leon Edwards? Colby Covington, right? Like, that that option, the heat option, already exists, and I just don't think Leon is going to be the bigger heat option. No, well, what I laid out was if he beats Wonder Boy, yeah, yeah, though, it, it, it's yeah, just yeah. undeniable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he, un, if, it's undeniable. You he, can't. It, there, it would be. I would actually. I'll go as so far as to say you'd almost have to. I would never even call UFC a sport again at that point. Yeah, if, like you, if, if, if he gets another one, but like, but he, we shouldn't have to be saying that, right? Like he's he's won ten in a row. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually we talked about this recently too. I mean, in these in the thicker divisions and i don't mean weight weight wise i mean more depth wise like 145 155 170 i i think those three divisions have so many fighters and have so many good fighters i mean we've seen it now a couple of times guys reel off nine ten fight win streaks tony uh even max holloway before he you know ascent to champion it's just kind of the norm now in those divisions. So I'm like, it was something that enraged me years ago that I'm like more used to now. Yeah, that that's true. That, but like, I, I mean, ten is still a lot. But but you're you're right. It, it would have, you know, when when the Tony Ferguson one happened, we were enraged by it. even the Neil Magny. Enraged. One, even the Neil Magny. No. And now. But then even you look at it now, I go to sleep at night. The fact that Tony never really had like a real title shot, quote unquote, like, I don't know. I mean, I think if he had faced Khabib, he would have been mauled. And if he had faced Connor, he, with his funky striking, he would have been knocked out. But, you know, I don't know. I I don't know. I don't lose sleep over it. Yeah, I I guess you're right about that now, too. Although I I will say the losses now from Tony and we're we're getting way off the UFC 263. But I want to say this. The losses now for Tony, I I will always have that question in my head is, is he losing now because he's finally the competition like he finally faced the competition that can beat him? Or did Father Time beat him? Because because he's old now. He's not a young guy. Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, there is something to be said for that, that he kind of missed his peak. The UFC in a lot of ways can be like thoroughbred resourcing. You have that like two or three year window of just pure peak mm-hmm. and he kind of passed that and, you know, people might have caught up to him. All right, you're right though. We got so far off the track. Last thing we'll say on 263 and we'll make it a quick one. Izzy wins, defends his middleweight title as we liked. Uh, what do you think is next for him? He called out Bobby Nux. Uh, but you know, a middleweight does not have tons of guys banging at the door of a title shot. So it kind of is what it is. Yeah. I, I like the Bobby Nux call. I, I will say it's pretty ballsy to take the guy who probably can give you your toughest fight in a rematch where it doesn't really do all that much for your legacy and call him out. Like that, that's a ballsy move in the first place, but you're right. Like I, I think the division needs more time to develop guys who could be viable contenders. 
you know, like, I mean, like, if Uriah Hall picked up a couple more wins in a row, we could talk about Uriah Hall. If, you know, I mean, I don't even know in that division. Uh, Derek Brunson probably needs a couple more wins, and even that's a rematch, really, when you, you go back to early Idesanya. So, like, yeah, the, the, people need to win. People need to shake things out. But I, I think his call-out was the right one. I, I think we see him in there next against uh, Bobby Knox. Agreed. Let's get to UFC Vegas 29. We're going to be breaking it down. It's our favorite segment on the show, Fights, Dogs, Parlays. We're going to give you a couple of fight breakdowns, a couple of dogs, and a couple of parlays to play. But first, before we do that, Gumby, uh, one may wonder if any fine company sponsors this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays. Absolutely. Fight Stocks and Parlays is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. So whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jujitsu, or any other martial art, you can log your training sessions, tag your training partners, tag different techniques, weigh-ins, competitions, you name it. They've got it all in the palm of your hand. Once again, that's Maroon Social, wherever it is you download apps. All right, this is a banger of a main event. You got Korean Zombie at minus 110. You got Dan Ige also minus 110, which is to say that Vegas doesn't know what to make of this fight. Uh, but we'll break it down and tell you what we make of this fight. Let's look at Chan Sung Jung. Since returning from mandatory military service from South Korea, he beat Dennis Bermudez via KO, then lost to Yair Rodriguez via KO at uh, 4 minutes, 59 seconds of the fifth round. Classic fight. If you're listening to the show, I assume you're a hardcore MMA nerd and have seen that fight. If you haven't, pause this right now and go watch it. Uh, but after that crazy loss, uh, TKO's Renato Maicano, uh, TKO's Frankie Edgar, but then runs into Brian Ortega back in October of last year and loses the unanimous decision. So he is 3-2 and two since returning to the UFC the three wins being KOs, so the man is still a KO machine. And he's going to be facing Dan Ige here, who's coming up a win over Gavin Tucker via KO, lost to Calvin Cater before that, split decision wins over Edson Barbosa and Mertzad Bektik before that, uh, also beat Kevin Aguilar, Danny Henry, Jordan Griffin. So he actually had Mike Santiago as well. He had a six-fight win streak until running into Calvin Cater, uh, but came back with a win over Gavin Tucker this past March. So if you really want to break it down, let's just go from 2017, which would be the same time that Chan Sung Jung came back from his mandatory military service. And Dan Ige, not a huge name, but what a fucking record has he compiled the last four years. Uh, I'm doing some quick math here. Three, six, nine, ten. He is ten and two in the last four years. Who you got? I'm going to go with Korean Zombie here. I am a little bit worried about how bad he looked against Brian Ortega. Um, Brian Ortega's boxing, piecing him up like that, does give me pause. But in the same sense, like, Dan Ige uh, wasn't able to strike with and hang with Calvin Cater, who I, who I generally consider to be a very good boxer, but also not as complete of a fighter as Brian Ortega. I also think Korean Zombie in this fight does have a little bit of the grappling advantage. I think people forget how good of a grappler Korean Zombie is. So I think even if the striking is not going his way, he's kind of got that ace in the hole. I, I think it makes total sense that this fight winds up being negative 110 on both sides. Like, this is a really hard one to call because both guys have looked so good at times, right? You know, Korean Zombie going in there and knocking out Frankie Edgar. Man, he looked like a beast. Dan Ige just absolutely put it to Gavin Tucker with a bomb ski of a knockout. So, like, both of them looked really good at times. And then other times, you know, they, they've kind of just been outboxed in, in fights. So, I'm going to go with Korean Zombie, but I am hesitant to pick anybody in this one. But ultimately, that grappling, you know, sort of is a backup plan here. Gives me a little bit better of a feeling about him. Yeah, it's a tough call. Uh, obviously, the odds being very close. I lean Zombie uh, just based on what you said, which is I do find him to be more complete. So if we do get into some sort of dogfight here, a Nate Diaz-esque fifth round, who's going to take this home? Well, he's the zombie. And if it went to the ground, I trust him more. And in tight fights, I look for the more complete fighter. So I, too, am going zombie, and I like all the reasons you listed as well. Get to another really exciting fight on this card, actually. I'm super pumped for this. Um, Sergi Spivak is a heavyweight who, in the UFC, is 3-2. and two. He debuted against Walt Harris, lost via TKO, came back, an arm triangle choke, tied to Ivasa, 
lost to Marcin Tybura via unanimous decision, and is on a two-fight win streak with wins over Carlos Felipe and Jared Vandera via TKO back in February of 2021. So coming off that TKO, uh, and he's fighting our boy, Alexi Olenek. The guy is like 75 years old. Uh, <laughs> Olenek is on a two-fight losing streak, TKO'd versus Derek Lewis, TKO'd versus Chris Dawkins, beat Fabricio Verdum and Maurice Green before that, armbarred Maurice Green. So two and two in his last four, but Olenek, uh, the absolute master uh, at heavyweight. Now that Frank Muir's gone, and um, and really with Verdum uh, gone as well, Olenek is kind of like that heavyweight submission machine stalwart uh, out of 59 wins professionally, 46 are by submission. And that is just absolutely insane. But what makes me so excited about this, uh, Spivak, the minus 225 favorite, Olenek, the plus 185 dog, but always a live dog just because of his submission skill. Spivak is 26 years old, Gumby. And at heavyweight, uh, where you see guys compete into their late 30s, and the UFC has been light, for lack of a better word, on heavyweight prospects, they might have one in Spivak here, and it's fun to see him fight an old lion and see if he can progress. If he's good enough to be a UFC-caliber fighter at heavyweight, I mean, he's only 26. That means he literally has 16 good years ahead of him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take Spivak in this one. Um, And the big difference maker for me is his cardio and his ability to put somebody up against the wall. Um, while I do really favor Olenek in a fight that hits the ground here, I also think Spivak kind of has control of that situation. Um, I think Olenek not only has to try to submit Spivak, but he has to try to submit Spivak early because I don't think he has the gas tank to fight Spivak late. Spivak does a really great job of pouring it on late. Like we, we saw that a little bit when he fought Marcin Tybura. He still looked like he had gas in the third round. So I like Spivak for that reason here, and I think that's probably why he's coming in as a big favorite, is that he's young, he's fresher, and he's going to be fresh late in the fight, and and he's notoriously hard to put away. So with all that being said, as long as he avoids the early takedowns, I think he's fine. Uh, We will, and agreed, uh, can't go against that. Marlon Vera is a minus 235 favorite to Davey Grant. Marlon Vera, what an interesting story. Debuted in the UFC in 2014, but really coming off his two most high-profile fights, he TKO'd Sean O'Malley uh, back in August of 2020. That was in the first round. He was a dog in that fight. So huge win for him off O'Malley, who the UFC clearly trying to build as like a next big star, has a ton of hype and marketing behind him. Uh, Marlon Vera, you know, destroys that party, and they say, okay, well, here's Jose Aldo, and he loses to Jose Aldo via unanimous decision back in December. So, uh, and if you want to peel it back even further, before Sean O'Malley, he lost to Song Yadong via unanimous decision, uh, and that was after a five-fight win streak. So, one and two in his last three, trying to not lose two in a row, and facing Davy Grant here, dangerous Davy Grant, uh, who's always a live dog himself, Davy Grant right now is on a... Three-fight win streak, wins over Grigory Popov, Martin Day, Jonathan Martinez. You'd have to go back to uh, July of 2018. He lost to Manny Bermudez, uh, and that was to Triangle Choke, uh, and lost to Damian Stasiak before that via armbar. So, uh, you know, submission's always a problem for him, at least defense. He actually has a win over Marlon Vera, and that's back in 2016. So this is actually a rematch, but Vera... Uh, at least in this fight, is the favorite at minus 235. Who you got? I'm going to take Davy Grant, surprisingly, in this one. I, I know that, Yeah, I know that's crazy to people, but, like, so here's the thing about Davy Grant in, in those fights we've seen him so far. Not only has he gone in there and knocked out his last two opponents in Martin Day and Jonathan Martinez, but those two guys are both strikers. Like, he went in there with strikers and outstruck them. He's now using his grappling for what I think he should have been doing his grappling for all along. He's using it to counter and get back to his feet and actually is much more enamored in his boxing. And granted, Davy Grant is not Jose Aldo. Davy Grant is not Sean O'Malley. Davy Grant is not most of the people that Marlon Vera has fought standing up. 
but I do think he has the ability to turn people's lights off. And I also think Marlon Vera, not the most unhittable fighter on the planet. So especially if we're talking odds wise here, I mean, I love Davy Grant at damn near plus 200, right? Like I, I think that's a ridiculous number. If you're telling me that like this fight was coming in at even money odds, I would definitely think longer about this. But if you're thinking about putting down a bet on this fight, it should never be on Marlon Vera at that number. And I'm going to tell you, even if it was closer to even, I still think I like Davy Grant here. It's kind of a, a real sleeper underdog on this card. All right. Well, this is this is big talk. Send all hate mail to Gumby Freeland or <laughs> send a percentage of your winnings to at Gumby Freeland. Uh, so you're picking Davy Grant as a dog of the week, but our official dog of the week is actually Kanako Murata, a plus 125 uh, over Virna Jindaraba. Let's hear it. So look, I, I am, I've been singing the praises of Kanako Murata for a really long time. She is an absolute beast in the wrestling and she's fighting Virna Jandaroba, and I can understand why Jandaroba is the favorite. She's looked good grappling as well. She's mixed it up with Mackenzie Dern and went the whole distance with her. But actually, going the distance with Mackenzie Dern taught me something about Jandaroba, and it's that she's probably not going to win too many fights on her feet because really it looked like Mackenzie Dern boxed her up quite a bit. And in addition to that, Mackenzie Dern was able to stuff any, you know, most of the takedowns Jandaroba threw her way. So. If Mackenzie Dern did that, which is pretty good, and then, you know, you take into account that, like, Kanako Murata has a wrestling background, I think as long as she is the one dictating the grappling, which I think she will be, I think she should safely win this fight. I think she will either be on top and will be able to stay away from the submissions, or she'll outbox her. Um, I don't think Jada Roba's got to get enough of the top game to really be successful here, and that's what she needs in order to beat somebody like Murata. So I like Kanako Murata in this one. I think she's a sneaky good pick at plus 125. Boom. All right. Uh, let's get to our parlay to play. Uh, the aforementioned Sergey Spivak at minus 225. Big odds on a favorite, but pair him together with Lara Procopio at minus 145. And it actually turns you into plus 145 money or plus 144, I should say. So you're getting plus money on two picks we feel really good about. Let's hear it. So I've already told you why I like Sergei Spivak, right? Like, I think he's younger, fresher, going to stay away from the early sub, and he should be fine. The reason I like Laro Procopio in this one is uh, two things. Number one, I think her grappling offense is better than Casey O'Neill's, and that's a, a really bad sign in Casey O'Neill because Casey O'Neill won her debut largely by out-grappling Shannon Dobson and just looking like a beast on the mat. I think Procopio has better grappling. She she scored seven takedowns in her last fight. She's got good top games. She's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu. I just don't think Casey O'Neill's going to take it to her there. And then add in the fact that Laura Procopio was in her first fight against Carol Rosa, who's, who's a beast. She's a big girl, and she's really tough. And that fight had like 350 strikes landed in that fight. So the output is there for Procopio, too. So in, in a women's straw or a flyweight fight where you can kind of assume this fight will probably go the distance... I like the person who's going to be on top and who's got better output. So unless Casey O'Neill can somehow steal one of those two, which I just don't see her doing, Laura Procopio seems like a pretty safe play at negative 145, and especially somebody who I like in parlays. Boom. That wraps up this edition of uh, Fights, Dogs, and Parlays for UFC Vegas 29. Follow along. We'll be live tweeting during the show at Top Turtle MMA on Twitter. We sure hope you like some of these picks. Let us know if we did you right. Let us know if we did you dirty. We're accepting both love and hate feedback at all times. And please, head on over to iTunes, write a review if you like what we do here. That helps keep the lights on in the Top Turtle Podcast studio. Gumby, this train is a moving down the tracks. Where should we go next? Well, we're going to transition now to my interview with Alexa Kamer, who talks about coming back from his first loss of his professional career and looking to get back in the win column. And we'll get to that interview for you right now. All right, and joining us today is Alexa Kamer, who fights Nick Negurumanu at UFC Vegas 29 this upcoming weekend. So, Alexa, I wanted to start by talking about your last fight because you're coming off of the first loss in, in your career. Take us through a little bit of the emotions of getting back into the cage and, hey, even getting back into training following that. Uh, yeah, you know, I was upset uh, about how I performed. I wasn't happy about it. Um, clearly I could have done better. Uh, my coach, my coaches were telling me, um, just adjustments that I should be making in the corner. Uh, I went into the rounds, uh, feeling comfortable in one position. Um, but 
William Knight did a good job. He came out the better fighter that night. He adjusted. He made the adjustments. He came out the victor. Uh, when it comes to, like, how I feel about it, I, I did, you know, I, I am upset with myself. I left all that behind in Abu Dhabi, though. Um, I, we, we, what we took home is everything we should be thinking about, all the improvements we should be making and what I did wrong and the adjustments we need to make. So, uh, yeah, we got, got in the gym as soon as possible afterward, and uh, we've just been sharpening up ever since. So we've been waiting for this. I get the opportunity now going into it. Uh, I'm, I'm salty about the last loss. I, it left me with a bad taste in my mouth, and I'm looking to uh, redeem myself, and not only for, you know, the people that support me, uh, but for myself, especially in my family and whatnot. Absolutely. And now you mentioned getting back and sharpening up some of the things you felt like you needed to sharpen up. And, and I'm sure you don't want to give too much away here, but is there something in particular that you felt that you needed to do the most work to or the something that you feel like you gained the most leading into this fight? Uh, no, I felt good going into it. We had a great game plan. I just didn't act on the game plan as well as I hoped. Um, I, I was like a little timid on letting my hands go last fight. Uh, whether that be from nerves or you know whatnot, maybe I you know I think I I think I just felt comfortable in the clinch uh, first round. I kind of you know had had cage cage control and I kept felt comfortable in the clinch. So and then the pre and then the rounds uh, leading on leading that one, uh, I just didn't let my hands go. So you know just worked on letting my hands go. I, I'm planning on going in here and uh, just being all around trying to show showcase what we've been what we've been working on how i've been improving and uh you know i i i before before i came into the ufc i i was very like uh put everything out there uh didn't really care what what the outcome was going to be i just went to fight and uh i was just going back to my roots and let my hands go a little more you know and just and just looking for a good old-fashioned scrap here and, and I'm curious, too, because, you know, you said, you know, you're going back to the beginning of your career and, and just letting your hands go and, and doing your thing. Your, your career is not that long, right? Like, you're, you've only been a professional for seven fights now. And, and you know, you obviously had quite an amateur career as well. But do, do you feel like where you are at your career now, you, you feel like a different person? You feel like you've gone through stages of your career? Absolutely. You know, I, I, yeah, I haven't my uh, competitive the competitive portion of, of what I've been doing has been, you know, hasn't been as long as my like training itself when I, but I've been training since I was 16 and I've been, I've been in the gym. I've been competing since I was 18 years old. So, I mean, I've been, I've been in and out of the gym just constantly. I train every day. Uh, we all know that MMA, there is no off season. So uh, we're constantly in the gym, constantly working and uh yeah absolutely i think uh, i think i've grown a, a fine bit you know and and uh, i'm just looking to go out there on june 19th and showcase it absolutely let's talk about june 19th a little bit cuz you're fighting Nick Negurumanu who he's had a really long layoff it's it's going to be about 27 months since the last time we've seen him when they gave you that name obviously probably one you you probably hadn't heard of or or maybe only sort of heard of was it a, a weird feeling, and did did you feel like you knew anything about them leading into it? No, and uh, you know I, I don't look at I don't look past anyone. I look at everybody as as a threat, and uh, I go in uh, knowing that knowing uh, very well that they're probably trained to do the same thing I'm planning on doing to, to doing to them. So uh, I don't I haven't heard of him, haven't seen his fights. Um, we watched some of the tape he has, uh, you know, a bit hard to find stuff. Um, but we got, you know, we got a good, we got a good plan going into it. And, and, you know, I'm just looking in, I'm looking to get in there and make a statement regardless of who they put in front of me. So, um, I'm sure he's training, you know, to win, but I'm, I'm going in there and, uh, I'm looking to make a statement. Well, we're looking forward to seeing that, too. Now, you say you're looking for a statement. I always like to ask the fighters, too, if they're willing to give one. Do you have a prediction for how this one goes down? Uh, I mean, I, I could give you a prediction, but when it comes to the fight game, you know, anything can happen. And, you know, I'm going to – I know in my mind I see myself getting my hand raised regardless of the outcome, but I do want to finish 
finish this fight uh, within three rounds. I don't want to leave it in the hands of the judges. Uh, before I came in the UFC, uh, even my contender series fight, I was finishing fights. Uh, and then I got my first two fights, and uh, they went to decision. And, you know, it, I, I I love winning, period. You know, I love winning, period. And I love getting my hand raised. It's, it's amazing. However, I, I like finishing people, too, and I like finishing the fight early. So I'm going to be looking to, uh, you know, finish the fight a little early on. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be first round. doesn't have to be sick round. could be third round within three. Well, we're looking forward to that. Now, Now, I want to before I let you go, I wanted to go back to it, something you said a little bit earlier, that you had actually started training MMA and getting ready for you know where you are today at 16 years old. Is there something that led you to the gym when, when you were only in high school that, that led you towards training for a career punching people in the face? Just pure curiosity, man, and, and, uh, and just the w- will to learn something new, you know. So, uh, I, you know, me and my buddy just wanted to learn. Uh, something new. MMA was on the was on the rise with the UFC and, and other promotions. Uh, so I googled I googled MMA gyms near me and Sean Style popped up and I got in. Never expected to uh, to you know take it to this extent, but you know one thing leads to another, and the people that surrounded me in the gym kind of brought me in, made me one of them. Uh, took me in as family, a family of their own, and, and here I am, very grateful for it as well. That, that's really awesome. Now, I'm curious, too, is there a moment where you felt like, like this is it? Because you said, you know, you're doing this just out of curiosity originally. Was there a moment where you are like, oh, shit, I'm, I can make a living out of this? I, I always talk to my dad about it. He's always asking me, like, what I, you know, what, what I think will happen, uh, where I think it'll lead. Is it possible that I you know, make a living out of it. Could I be like Stipe? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I never, I always, like, I always wanted to take it as far as possible, but probably as soon as I went pro, finished my first pro fight, uh, and got, you know, got paid for the first time uh, for not only fighting, but, you know, training as well, uh, it kind of, like, popped up on my head. I could, you know, I can make a run at this. I can you know, make some serious money if I make it, you know, to the UFC. And I got this far, and, and I plan on sticking around. So that's why I want to go into the next fight and show everybody, you know, I'm a fighter to watch. I'm a, I'm an entertainer, fight, entertaining fighter, and I want to show that. Well, we're certainly looking forward to it. Once again, fans, this is Alexa Kamer, who fights Nick Naguramanu at UFC Vegas 29 this upcoming weekend. Alexa, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We certainly couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also want to thank our sponsors, Maroon Social and Better Than Vegas, as well as the mothership, CagesidePress.com. And again, we always want to remind you guys that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Top Turtle MMA in both of those spots. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gubby-Freeland. He's... Shockwave Dave Tremonte. We'll catch you then.